certainly a privilege uh, to be here, and I thank you for the, the opportunity. Uh, if you were here yesterday, you heard my heart's desire that the Lord would stir me up as well, because we are considering the book of Romans in light of its beginning and end, that the gospel is not just something that we believe, but something that we live, and that can I really hold to the gospel as a noun if I don't actually affirm the gospel as a verb? And for many of us, we can actually grow to a place in Christian life where we have now heard the gospel so long and believed it, it's taking care of a good bit of our personal problems, and so we feel pretty content. And instead of actually using the freedom that we have in Christ to now give this life away, because I'm released from performance, I don't have to earn it, I could never, And so I'm released from that obligation, and so I have a life to give away for free. And what should it be given away for? And so the book moves beyond personal redemption in chapter 8 into a discussion of the people of God in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And it brings us into the realm of Gentiles and the Jews, into the realm of nations. Honestly, I think it's uh, indicting on us that we typically have parked in Romans 1 through 8 and our personal gospel, as it were, how it affects us individually as sinners. And we know those chapters and they are precious and we really own them. But how often have we then moved beyond? And if we have moved beyond chapter 8, typically it has been for a couple different reasons. Uh, Both of them are theological. (laughs) We tend to move beyond chapter 8 because there's some really interesting theology there. And so for those, you know, who might be Calvinistic, there's the sovereignty of God and divine choosing and election, chapters 9, chapters 10. Or for those who are inclined in, in the discussions of eschatology, there's dispensational versus covenant theology the Jew and the Gentile and how all that all fits in the end of history. And so some of you out there, you know, who are dealing with your own families, you know, your spouse, your children, your job, and you hear these people talking about these theological debates, you kind of maybe inwardly roll your eyes and go, that's for them. I don't know. They talk over my head. I don't know if, you know, it seems to be a distraction. And some of you are like heartily into evangelism and heartily into like, you know, the gospel, we got to get, we got to care for people, we got to get out there, and you know, you're like looking at these debates that are going on, you're going like, can't we just be united for the gospel, can we just move beyond some of these things, and of course, in light of that, you know, it's like, yes, I'm viewing this book of Romans, I'm suggesting that we could view this book of Romans as dealing with our own gospel issues and our own unity issues in the church for the sake of missions. That chapter 15 in the mission to Spain is actually fueled by the gospel dealing with individuals, the church, and then propelling them into the nations. And so, yes, I agree with you. Yes, we need to be about missions. We need to be about evangelism. And yes, theology can actually be a distraction when the ism gets in the way of people 
And, and so often we, we tend to do this, and we lose the sight of that sometimes there's a mystery to the ways of God that, that prohibits us from closing it all off with a nice ism. And so, but I'm going to suggest to you something even bigger that affirms to you, affirms both. For those of you who love chapters 1 to 8, I want to encourage you to open your mind fresh to chapters 9, 10, and 11. That there is, God has a, a larger purpose, a larger goal. Now let me just suggest to you in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the issue here is the faithfulness of God. If God broke his faithfulness, God broke his promises to the nation Israel. If he did that or were to do that, as I heard John MacArthur say at a conference, Shepherds Conference, what guarantee is that? Is there that then he won't break his promises with you? It's the same God. And so there is, a, there is an intimate tie between your personal destiny and your relationship with God and his faithfulness with you and the larger storyline of the Bible and how the larger purposes of God fit into that. I want you to see today your place in that larger picture of God's purposes. And so they are intimately connected, as we'll share hopefully soon. And then for the rest of you that, you know, just evangelistic and mission, I want to just encourage you all that these are three chapters in a precious piece of paper. How in the world, you know, it's like if God gave a big piece of paper to the Apostle Paul and said, speak the gospel to the church in Rome, and he took three out of 16, a good fifth of the book, to talk about this issue that seems to be, you know, Jew, Gentile, Calvinism, Arminianism, dispensationalism, covenant theology, what's going on. Somehow or other, this is part of his gospel. And you just can't, like, exit off and go, oh, I guess we don't need that. This is part of the gospel message, and it is part of the gospel fuel. This is where now God invites us in to think in terms of nationality, ethnicity, race, issues that our culture often deals with. Some of you, some of us, it is deeply personal. Some of you, some of us, it feels like a distraction. But it is big. God didn't just make you individuals. He didn't just make you human beings. He also set you in a nation. He also set you among a people. He gave you a language. You're listening to me today in English. There's a reason for that. And so I want to invite you into how does this large global purpose of God fit within these issues and then speak in terms of identity as we're using that as our launch pad at the end to like say how this gospel and how this church unity fuels us then for missions. We're going to use that as an example today. So, just think of the ways that we as humans uh, commonly divide ourselves. You know, it's like in, in my little town back in, you know, in Hills, Hillsdale County, I'm actually from Jonesville, which is just north of Hillsdale, 8,000 people. On the campus where there's a college, um, and I read the history of the college. This has gone on since the 1800s. There is a division between the, the, the bubble, they call it, the bubble, and the townies. 
Okay, so human beings being human beings, it's like you got divisions right there, you know. You might call them, you know, background, location, class, I don't know. There's a div- division there, right? Of course, you know that our culture has a large, some large divisions. We've seen these exasperated, and they are historical, and they are difficult. And so it's like, how do we, how do we move beyond, you know, issues of race? Do we embrace it? Do we talk about it? What do we do about that? And then internationally, you know, it's like going, I went to Singapore same summer I was with you all in 2019, you know, and, and listening to the, the issues in, in Singapore uh, about, you know, different backgrounds and their colonization and the unrest in Hong Kong and do we, you know, they were waving a flag for Great Britain, and my driver, a Christian Singaporean, was going like, yeah, let's bring back the British overlords. You know, it's like, okay, you know, what? It, they have those issues too. And so internationally, how the West has influenced, how it's kind of like walked in, especially we who are Americans, if you've ever read the book When Helping Hurts, you know, walked into situations that if we know we're the ones with the resources, we're the ones with the idea, and there's kind of a paternalism. Almost as if, you know, your dad never lets you grow up and continues to tell you what to do and not recognizing the, the mutual assets that we have in Christ, people to people as well as individuals to individuals. These are the kind of things that actually show up in, this chap- in these chapters. And so I want to bring, I want to invite you in to chapters 9 and 10 and 11 let me read to you just the opening verses of chapter 9. It would be too long to read the whole text, though you can go home and read it or re-listen to this message. And verses nine, Chapter 9, verses 1 through, I think, around verse 6. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That's a strong way of saying, please believe me, I'm telling you the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. A remarkable thing for the apostle who said, Rejoice always. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Given the unrest in the nation of Israel today, these words have a different feel, don't they? They have a very poignant, present feeling to them. These are the people, if you think about it this way, the people being attacked are the people to whom belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the temple, the promises, and even the Christ according to the flesh. The problem is they have not received these promises, at least in mass. Just taking the example of the adoption, 
chapter 8, verse 15 says, We have received the adoption, the spirit of adoption, which cries out in our heart, Abba, Father. We have received the Holy Spirit. We have received the calling as sons of God. We have now been brought into the presence of God who are Gentiles, who are outsiders, who are strangers from the covenant, who are without hope and without God in the world. In our ignorance, we have been brought in now to what belongs to them. And yet they, largely, are enemies of the gospel. Try to proselytize in the nation of Israel. Enemies of of the gospel. Hostile, as one older Jewish gentleman in Louisville, Kentucky said when I evangelized him several years ago, it's like he said, Jesus didn't want anything to do with us and we want nothing more to do with him. He didn't want to be a Jew anymore and we we don't want anything with him. It's like... They're hostile often to the gospel. And yet the promises belong to them and I'm enjoying it. And I dare say if I were to ask for a raise of hands today, there's probably not many Jews among us. And if we were to go to congregation after congregation throughout the world, there would not be a a majority, hardly even a, a sampling or a representation of Jews among us. Very rare is a Jew that turns to Christ. And so it looks to Paul, and you can imagine, as synagogue after synagogue is kicking him out, and yet Gentiles after Gentiles are receiving his message, it may look like God's word and promise to the Jews has failed. And God broke his promise. And so how do we deal with that? Because verse 6 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, No, God does keep his promises. God is faithful. Lamentations 3 is true. The end of Micah is true. God never fails. And so how do we think about this? And Paul says, let me give you a re-examination of the very beginning of things in Genesis. Then I'm going to walk through how they failed. Then I'm going to show you how their future looks. Let's talk about the people of God. If we talk about the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, the glory of God, which every believer has coming, let's now talk about the people of God. Where does the promises of God fit with the current Jewish people? It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. My wife and I, Gina, who's here with me, we have six children. We have a boy, then a girl, then three boys in a row, and a girl. Four of them are married. We have five grandchildren. Now imagine if I were to turn to Gina and were to say, not all who have descended from Bob Snyder are of Bob Snyder. There may be eyebrows raised. There may be, what do you mean, quizzical looks. If you didn't know my family at all, you may begin to lower your eyebrows and look a little different at me. It's like, what's going on here? What kind of a statement is this? Not all, you know, he says, not all of Israel, from Israel, are Israel. And if you didn't get it the first time, verse 7 says, Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's seed. But through through Isaac, your seed shall be named. 
Not all the children of the flesh are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded or reckoned as seed. So Paul goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. The promises were never given to all the biological seed of Israel. In that, not all Israel was designated, was called seed or Israel. But God specified at the very beginning in Genesis 21 that through Isaac, your seed shall be named. So he's going to choose who's going to be seed of Abraham, which is interesting. So he then brings up the next generation. Let's talk about twins. Twins is, you know, the kind of thing that helped Augustine get off astrology. You know, they weren't twins, but they were born on the same day and their lives are very different. Twins provide interesting examples because they're, they start at the same time. And so what about Jacob and Esau? What about them? Well, before they were born, before they had done good or evil, that God's purposes according to his choice might stand. It was said that the older shall serve the younger, just as the prophet Malachi says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so God passed by Esau and chose Jacob. Now when I've taught this on a collegiate level, it's been interesting to see the responses. Esau to me is like, He's your, he's your camel-wearing, outdoor-loving, six-pack-drinking kind of guy on the weekend that just like, you know exactly where he's coming from. He speaks his mind. He maybe isn't philosophically, you know, all that sophisticated, but he's got his, you know, he, 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 he knows what he wants and he goes after it. And so, and he just kind of lives his life, not long-term, but enjoying it. And some of my students actually found Esau to be a commendable man. Like, he's a commendable guy. And then, of course, then there's Jacob. And Jacob is a man of the tent. He's a smooth man. He's a man that knows a deal when he sees it. I'm famished. I'm starving. Can you give me some, can you give me some soup? Oh, brother Jacob. And Jacob goes, sure. How about your birthright? It's an economic transaction, Both sides are agreed. It's a win-win. No wrong dealing here. And yet you and I go, Jacob, just give the man some soup. I think you're overpricing him. Right? And of course, Esau is a man of the moment, so he buys into it, not realizing how he's losing out in the end. And so you see both of these men working their things, and of course, Jacob goes on to deceive his father. And Jacob goes on to like wheel and deal with God. If you bring me back to the land, then you will be my God. And I'll throw in a tenth. Until he meets his match with Laban, who's also a wheeler and dealer. And just as he deceived his father by pretending to be a brother, Jake Laban, his father-in-law, deceives the son-in-law by having a sister pretend to be a sister. And so what goes around comes around and God has rendered to Jacob according to his deeds. Jacob is not a good man. He is a deceiver, as his name actually says. And Esau is not a good man. Neither son is good. And as we learn from chapters 1, 2, and 3, it is pointless to ask, who's better? 
That's almost like asking, which flavor of poison do you like? I mean, both of them are bad. They're both bad. And God, in his grace, sets his favor on Jacob, who doesn't deserve it. This is grace. This is what they call sovereign grace. And if you've not wrestled with it or considered it, underneath all of the outward manifestations of salvation is a very mysterious thing called God choosing or election also called predestination, and it is very, very mysterious. I treat it with holy gloves. There was a time period in my life where I was very, very proud and cocky on my theological knowledge and would argue people on predestination until I lost my assurance of salvation out of God's discipline and then found myself wondering whether I was chosen And all of a sudden, predestination didn't look so pretty anymore. It freaked me out and scared me. Well, it was never meant to look at it from that side. It's a comfort to those who have believed in Christ. And it's also a rebuke to those who are proud, according to 1 Corinthians. So Ephesians uses it for comfort. 1 Corinthians uses it as a rebuke to the proud. I was being proud, and I'm glad I was being rebuked. But it wasn't until I looked at the incarnation that I realized this is a mystery. It is unsolvable. Whenever the divine and the human are united, as we see in the incarnation of Christ at Christmas, where God the Son, second member of the Trinity, becomes fully man without ceasing to be God... And so now simultaneously he can be in time and outside of time, one person experiencing at the same time ignorance and omniscience, locality and omnipresence, weakness and omnipotence, finiteness and limitlessness. Once that mystery, which Paul calls great, grabs hold of you and shakes you a good bit, And you realize, I wouldn't believe this if it wasn't the testimony of the Old Testament and New Testament. If it wasn't the story of the gospel, which it is. This divine person, human and God, lives. If I didn't have the gospels testifying and showing me this person, and it is unexplainable without positing he is both God and man, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a rational basis to believe it because not that it's irrational. I'm not asking him to be something and not something at the same time in the same way because human nature can experience this and divine nature can experience that. I'm not asking for a contradiction. I'm looking at something that's above reason, not contrary to reason, and it's mysterious. And once that came home to me, then I realized this book is also divine and human. And so, yes, it is human. Human language, human forms of literature. But I can't infer, oh, it's human. It must have heirs. No. It's divine. Has no heirs. Oh, well, then God must have just dictated it. No. He used human personalities. Solomon pondering. Paul addressing churches. It's really and truly and fully human. Well, how can it be fully human and so fully divine at the same time? It's a mystery. It's perfect. 
Same with, with Jesus. How can he be both fully human and fully divine at the same time? It's a mystery. But it's true. Prophesied in Isaiah. Experienced in the Gospels. When the church in the 4th and 5th century tried to figure it out, they got to the end of the line in Chalcedon and said, well, we know it's not this, not this, not this, not this. But what it is, we don't know. That was so comforting. (laughs) It's a mystery. So when I came to the salvation one, it helped me so much to go, this is just as much a mystery. God loves sinners. God wants sinners to be saved. God held his arms out to a rebellious house of Israel all day long, Isaiah 65 says. And Paul quotes that in, in chapter 10 of Romans. All day long, he held his arms out to a rebellious people. He longed for them. He longed to be gracious to them, Isaiah 30. When Jesus saw the rich young ruler, he loved him. Mark chapter 10. That's remarkable. He wept over Jerusalem. And if we still haven't been proven yet by those testimonies of Scripture, we have the Apostle of Jesus himself who writes this classic chapter on God's sovereignty wishing he were accursed, meaning sent to hell, if only his fellow Jews would be saved. This past year, I remember counseling a young person that was struggling with predestination, struggling with the appearance of God. And I'm like, you cannot separate a philosophical view of God's sovereignty from the person of Jesus. How God wanted to be portrayed was on the cross. That's the God presented, as Luther described. We have nothing to do with the God hidden. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has explained him. You have to look to Jesus in order to see God. And I said, you cannot accuse this God of being uncaring and unfeeling towards humanity who died on the cross. And we cannot accuse the Apostle Paul of being hard on his fellow Jews because, oh, God is chosen and God is elected. And it's not, it's not Esau, it's Jacob, and it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac, and this and this, all through human history, all through the, the house of Israel. He's chosen, he's chosen. What an arbitrary, unfeeling, uncaring God. No, look at the apostle. Weep over his fellow Jews. That's the heart of Jesus. There is a mystery here that we do not understand. We cannot fault God because he held his arms out. He shows his revelation as chapter 1 says to all. We rejected him. If he goes farther and chooses to then do something extra to bring individuals to himself, that's an extra he didn't have to do. That's a grace he didn't have to give. God be praised he does it to some. He's not obligated to any. We can't envy him if he's gracious to some and not to others. He chooses according to his sovereign good pleasure. But we shouldn't conclude from that he doesn't have a heart for any and isn't willing that any come to him. Chapter 10 quotes the classic two whoever verses. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. It was that side of God that also got me out of my doubts and my fears. And it was precious. Without losing the sovereignty of God, I'm still Calvinistic. (laughs)
But thankfully, thankfully I'm now, I don't believe in the ism because I don't think this little mind will ever be able to go around the corner and tie the knot, if that makes sense. I'd rather adore and explore than to think I can just explain everything. So I invite you to look at these chapters in that way because Paul resolves the issue of the faithfulness of God by saying, ultimately, not every Jew was called because of election. And then, at the end of the chapter, he broadens it out to say, and because of that same freedom, he can bring in Gentiles. And if you, right now, were so inclined, you could do a 360 and go, hey, that includes you, and you, and you, and all look at each other right now. Because if God wasn't free to just decide and do whatever he wants to do, I am that I am, you and I wouldn't be here today. Because it's not our promises. It's not our covenant. They're not our people. Which is amazing. (laughs) Like, wow. Okay, so this is chapter 9. God resolves, I mean, Paul resolves this issue and say, no, God didn't break a promise. You need to actually realize that the promises were given to the elect. And those elect were sovereignly known and chosen. And so down to the Gospels, where John the Baptist tells them, don't, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. No, God is able to make stones into children of Abraham. And Jesus said to them, if Abraham were your father, you would love me. But as it is, you are doing the deeds of your father. And as John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers, Jesus called them children of the devil. And in Revelation, they are told to be a synagogue, not of Jews, but of Satan. Well, at this point, we might be tempted to say, well, okay, I guess God's done with them. (laughs) You know, there'll be a few of them. There'll be a token Jew here or there, just like there's a token Swede here or there. My wife's a Swede. Got to throw them in, you know. Like, you know, there's a token Swede here or there gets thrown into the church. You know, just another nation. Just throw them in. There must not be anything special with them. Well, turn with me to chapter 11 then. Because there have been some in the reform camp who are Calvinistic in their doctrine who basically have written the Jews off. Said God's done with them and he's replaced them with the church. I remember reading the commentary by John Calvin on Romans chapter 11 where it says, thus all Israel will be saved. And Calvin says plainly, that's the elect and the elect are Israel and Basically, we're not going to expect anything about ethnic Jews, biological Jews. They're, you know, not expecting God to do anything for them. And when we turn to chapter 11, it's like the dispensationalist crowd gets their opportunity against the Reformed Covenant crowd and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. God has a plan for the Jewish people, not just the Jewish individuals, but the Jewish people. Look with me at at verse 1. I say then... God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And he gives two proofs. Number one, there are individual Jews who are Christians. I, too, am an Israelite. Then he says that the curses of God are not permanent. 
Verse 7 is what Israel was seeking. It is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Okay, we got that far, Paul. Chapter 9 told us those who are chosen obtain it. You must be chosen. But is that all there is? Just individuals? Well, he keeps pressing on this, and he presses in further, and he says, well, yes, it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not. That's hardening, hardening of heart. And yes, David said in Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. Let their eyes be darkened, their backs bent forever. But have they stumbled so as to fall? Now, I come from the north, though I think the Ohio River Valley has more ice than we do up in Michigan. I used to live in the Ohio River Valley, and you guys specialize in ice storms, it seems like. But I remember walking into the shop one day where the gutter had let the, had let the water flow out into the concrete, and it was just smooth ice, and I was instantaneously on my back. <laughs> the next thing out of my mouth and consciousness was like, Oh, that hurt. <laughs> it was just instantly, bam, I hit my head on, the, you know, on the, the ice. And so let's just say that's falling. Okay? But stumbling is like trying to ice skate, and you're like almost ready to lose your balance and like, you know, shoveling around, but you finally regain it. Okay? You didn't fall. Okay? There's a difference between stumbling and falling. And Paul is saying Israel has stumbled as a group, but they haven't fallen. He's going to go on to say, I'm telling you a mystery, verse 25. I'm telling you a mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Partial because a token Jew or here are thrown in. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, until the fullness of other nations are brought in, and thus, in this way, all Israel will be saved. That phrase is remarkable. All Israel will be saved. Calvin says, yes, all the elect from the past. And Paul is driving in another direction, it seems. He's driving towards the identity as a people, Because then he says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I know there's differences of opinion. I'm suggesting to you that there is a day coming, however it works out in God's plan, when God will, will, with one generation of Jews, will remove the ungodliness. Perhaps how he saved Paul how he appeared to him, how he saved James, perhaps also appeared to him. They will look upon him whom they have have pierced and they will weep for him as for an only son when he pours out a spirit of supplication on them. Those hardened Jews, it will be like hot water poured on ice and God will melt their hearts and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will weep. Tears of repentance. I don't know how all that works out. I don't know all that plan. It's secondary to what I'm saying today, but I suggest it to you just as something to ponder and think about. It is a prophecy. When it fits, how it fits, I'm open to 
being wrong. But he drives towards the people because if you now look at verse 28 and 29, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. This is the group of them because they're enemies of the gospel. He's not talking about the token Jews now, it appears. The group is enemies for the sake of the gospel. And yet they are loved by God for the sake of their fathers. I love the ending of Micah chapter 7. The book of Micah ends so beautifully. Who is a pardoning God like you? Who is like you that could forgive this kind of rebellion? And it ends by saying, I have done so because of Abraham. There is something that's still going to happen because Abraham is loved of God. And for the sake of Abraham, I will love this people. They are enemies for the sake of the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were disobedient to God, you as a group, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience as a group, So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut all in disobedience, shut up all in disobedience, so that he might show mercy to all. Just as you Gentiles were shown mercy because the Jews were disobedient and they killed their Messiah and so the kingdom passed from them on to others, as Jesus says. So now, in the future, they who are disobedient will be shown mercy because of you. So that at the end of the day, both Jews and Gentiles will be leveled, in a sense. Where there will be both. They were all disobedient and they were all recipients of mercy. And this fits with what we saw in the whole gospel of this book of Romans. All our sinners, Jew and Greek, are any better. All who believe in Christ are justified by his grace. All, for there is no distinction. Chapter 3, verse 22. No distinction. All shall inherit the, in Christ shall inherit the promises of God. Yes, they're Jewish promises, but every Gentile is fellow heir with Christ of all those Jewish blessings. And now he says, Jew and Gentile, all were shut up in disobedience that all might be shown mercy. So for all you visual learners out there who just checked out about 15 minutes ago, I want to just give you a visual, okay? And it's a divinely inspired visual. It's a tree. Now, my dad uh, was uh, a dentist until age 43 and then became a hosta grower. And in one acre of land, he had 800 varieties of hostas. And 20 to 30 of them he registered with the National Hosta Society. And so just loved growing things. So I can just imagine this, for those of you with a green thumb out there, you get into this, you know, you like take sprouts and put it in water and set them up on walls somewhere and see what they're going to grow and you do all this stuff. And So grafting, grafting. Our culture loves to graft apples. We get, all, we get new varieties of apples all the time. All the, they're basically grafts of this and that and they, they keep mixing them around and trying this and that. And so... You know, it's like Paul says, I got an olive tree, 
that's been cultivated. It's been pruned and cured. You know, it's been cared for. And then I got the scruffy wild olive tree over there. Okay? And so this olive tree represents the nation of Israel. Look at how cultivated this is. Like William Disraeli, or Benjamin Disraeli, was, is said to have responded to somebody who criticized the Jews. He said, you know, your, ans- your ancestors were eating each other while mine were translating the scriptures. You know, it's like, this is, this is a cultivated olive tree, okay? In the middle here. And, the, and they're the wild barbarian our olive tree, uncultivated, is over here. And so, what has happened is, is that Branches, this represents the rich root of Abraham and, and the Jews that, whose promises this belongs to, but branches have been broken off because of unbelief. Now here again, don't let your Calvinistic God chooses draw false inference to the fact that people need to believe. Chapter 10 describes the Jews were broken off because they sought to establish their righteousness on their own. I called it the other day proving yourself. Don't try to prove yourself. That's trying to establish your own righteousness. Jesus already gave you a status. Don't try to be the good grandma, the wonderful neighbor, the whatever makes you feel and look good. Just be a Christian and wear that name. And so they tried to establish their own righteousness, and Paul calls it rebellion. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were insubordinate. And so as a result, they became like those two-year-olds that are trying to tie their shoes, and you go, let me help you. And they go, I do it. Each of us in our pride wants to establish our own righteousness and say, I don't want to cheat, let me do it. And God you know, looks at us and goes, I got to do it. And faith says, he does it, I don't. At some point, I have to say, I'm a failure, I give up. You got to do it. You got to do it for me, and you got to do it in me. The cross and the Holy Spirit, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And they didn't do that. They didn't submit. They haven't embraced the gospel by and large, and so they are held guilty for that. That's chapter 10. And so, they're broken off because of unbelief. Chapter 11 comes back at us who are Gentiles and three times tells us not to be cocky. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Because, well, well, you will say, Gentiles, they were broken off so that we might be grafted in. There's a good replacement theology slogan. You know, it's like, they were broken off their tree so that we might get what was theirs in the beginning. And Paul looks at you and says, don't be arrogant. It's not you that supports the tree. The tree supports you. Always remember, you're the guest. This isn't your tree. Continue to believe you're here by grace. Don't get proud. And so they were broken off by unbelief. He will break you off too if you don't believe. And so they stand, you stand by your faith. And so... Branches were broken off. Gentiles from this wild olive tree have now been grafted in. What an interesting tree. Some would say this tree isn't, I don't know what they would say. Is it the church? Is it not the church? I see this olive tree. I kind of think it's the church. 
I could get myself in trouble eschatologically with, with individuals. I don't know. I kind of think it's the, the church because if I didn't ever have branches grafted in, what I'd have is this big stalk with a few twigs. Paul, Peter, James, John. <laughs> See, you know, some, some Jewish believers. But if the Gentiles were never grafted in, we would never find a problem with this. We would go, oh yeah, they, they were broken off. Look at them all around because they didn't believe. It's their tree. It's a Jewish tree. Only some of the Jews got in. They're the ones that believed. So I could see that. I could see that like a fulfillment theology, not a replacement theology. Let's set that aside and go to the next phase. Paul says, ah, but he who broke the branches off is able to graft them back in. Which I think is the end time where all Israel is saved and he grafts them back in. It's like, oh, how interesting. At the end of the day, they can come back into their own tree. So this leads me to three conclusions as I end today. Three conclusions. First of all, before I conclude, are we all on the same page? God has a plan, not just for individual people, Jew or Gentile, but for the peoples. That's why I call this section the people of God. There is a plan for the Gentiles and a plan for the Jews as groups. They were both disobedient, then shown mercy, disobedient, shown mercy as groups. If you believe that, if that, if that strikes you, this is what the scriptures are saying, then here's some of the conclusions I have. Number one, let me tell you this story first. I was in Grand Rapids at a conference called uh, cultural, The Cultural Quotient. And it was interesting. I was a pastor in lower Michigan, and I went to this conference. It was, for, it was missiology. And what they did is they put us in one of these circle of privileges. And they put minorities on that side and us who were white on this side. I was told by an intervarsity worker that this happens all the time in intervarsity. And in other groups, it's very common. And so the women were put over here, the men over here, women over here, and I, as a white male, was over here. And then they proceeded to instruct us all on just how I have been privileged and others have not, which is actually has some truth to that. But I raised my hand and I said, you know what, we're at a Christian gathering and this is not true. We're actually missing a group because we're all Gentiles. And over here on this end of the room are the Jewish people who are the truly privileged people. And the rest of us are all in the same boat as Gentiles. Well, interestingly enough, a black brother came over to me with a baseball bat and got about this far from my face and and proceeded to impress upon me how I didn't really understand his background and how he has been victimized and mistreated and and things like that. And at that point, you know, I'm now the center of attention again in a different way. 
Truth be told, I didn't know a good bit of his background. I share some things in common with him. There's some things I don't. And I've since learned, yeah, there are some things that would be a truth. That story helps me to make this last point better because I'm going to call each of you above and beyond your personal ethnic identity. Number one, you are all Gentiles. If you are not a Jew here today, you are all in the same boat. You were all outside the covenant of God. You were without God and without hope. And if you are a believer today, I want you to go home and to say to God Almighty and his son, Jesus Christ, thank you for a double grace, both for the grace of salvation through the cross of Jesus and also for opening the door to me, a Gentile. Because I have two strikes against me why I should be, not be here. And so that's, first of all, I want you just to realize you have been given a double grace as a Gentile believer. Second, also I want you to realize as Gentile believers that as much as we should love the Great Commission, if the fullness of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the fullness of the Gentiles leads to the Jews coming in, then it really appears that even the Great Commission isn't ultimate in God's plan. That the salvation of the nations is actually penultimate. It is the step before the final step. That actually, chapter 11 says that as Paul, the apostle to the nations, was going around seeking people to believe in Christ, he was hoping, like extra credit, to win a Jew or two along the end through making them jealous. Taking the promises of the Bible, taking the promises of the covenant, and throwing them on Gentile crowds, and Gentiles loving it, believing it, receiving it, coming together and gathering like this, might, according to an interesting way of looking at Deuteronomy 32, quoted in this chapter, that lavishing on the Gentiles just might cause a Jew to go, hey, those are my promises. And Paul goes, well, yeah, come on over and enjoy them. It's like, quit staying over there and insisting on your own righteousness. Come on over and receive your Messiah. Come on over and receive your promises. They really are yours. And so he's hoping to use both his current missionary endeavors and the end of all, it seems, the fullness of the Gentiles to somehow see his people saved, which he's been praying for, that they would be saved and he desires their salvation. So these two things seem to be like, okay, I'm a Gentile believer brought into Christ, and this this chapter says I'm tempted to be arrogant, so now I'm bringing you down a notch. Number three, the arrogance of the Gentiles may be manifested in our preoccupation of racial harmony and ethnic diversity in the church. If that's all we talk about and we leave the Jews out of the question, it's not that we shouldn't strive for unity in the church. I'm going to talk about that tonight explicitly with chapter 14. It is precious to the heart of Paul, and he didn't want to create a big melting pot and make every Christian the same culture. We should appreciate the cultural differences and appreciate our brothers and sisters 
from different backgrounds. But if that's all we talk about and we don't get to missions and we don't get to the, the love of God for his people because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have missed the larger purposes and have inadvertently fallen into an arrogance as if our problems and our lives and our concerns are the main concerns of God. This chapter says otherwise. Now the challenge is going to be, as I said this morning in Sunday school, if I'm a victim, it is very difficult for me to see beyond that. And if I've been in a culture, whether it's the townies looked down upon by those in the bubble or whatever, you know, this side of the, the Gaza Strip, this side or that side, or whatever the division is, if I'm on the short end of the stick, it is very difficult for me to see beyond it. But I heard a conference recently on racial harmony at Bethlehem Baptist where a black brother called out his fellow brothers to say, can we get to the point where we can actually say our, our identity in Christ is bigger than our identity as being an African believe, African-American believer. That takes great faith. The same faith that it takes for somebody who grew up in a home that was abused and to not for the rest of their life see them as an abused child and always identify themselves that way, but actually go to the fact that that doesn't define me anymore. That's not who I am. I am in Christ and I can be fully productive and fully fruitful in whatever God calls me to. As somebody on the shore, seeing disciples in the boat, flailing around and wondering why Christ is sleeping, I have no business on the shore judging the disciples in the boat for being afraid and doubting Jesus. But Jesus, in the boat, has the right to say to his disciples, because he's sharing the afflictions with them, where is your faith? It is not going to be for me to say to a lot of people who have been in a disadvantaged position to call them to that kind of faith directly. But God will use believers to do so because they are believers in the boat with them. And Jesus ultimately is in each of our boats. He shares our afflictions. He bore our sorrows and carried our griefs and died for our sins. And I'm saying Jesus, based on this gospel, is calling us to a higher and greater identity in Christ than even our ethnic identities, which are ultimately Jew or Gentile. And so may the Lord do this for his namesake and for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I commit it. Amen.